If you would take your copy of the scriptures and turn with me to the New Testament book of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, I want to begin reading at verse 18 through the end of verse 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is God's word. You'll see a picture of one of our local congregations here in town. I had a meal with Pastor Phil just a few weeks ago, and we were sharing some of the the joys and some of the struggles. So I want us to pray for them today as we pray for us as well. Father, thank you for all of the outposts, we might say. All the outposts of churches throughout this community. Thank you for the pastors, for the the leaders, for the congregation. In particular, thank you for Pastor Phil and his congregation. Lord, they experience many joys in service to you and at the same time there can be many sorrows and difficulties and so we ask that we all might experience the grace that is ever sufficient help us today as we hear your word may it feed our souls may it bring truth in a clear way may it be health to our soul in every way in Jesus name amen Perhaps one of the most joyful events of this summer has been when the the boys' soccer team in Thailand was rescued. Now, if you haven't heard about this, you you must have been living on Mars or something. It's been all over the news in the summer. And you'll see a picture of these boys after they were rescued. They were taken to a hospital. And you'll notice there's a picture they're holding. And they're holding a picture of a, of a Navy SEAL diver who died in the early part of the rescue trying to save them. And so they're holding up this portrait in honor of him. But they did more. They did more than this. And, you know, there's always the rest of the story. And in this case, as you'll see in the next picture, these boys uh, later became temporary novice Buddhist monks. See, in Thailand, the major religion is Buddhism. 
And most of, almost all the boys and their families were Buddhists. And there's a Buddhist belief that by becoming a temporary novice monk, the boys would achieve merit. In other words, they could earn something by doing these good deeds of becoming a monk. This merit that they earn could be applied to the afterlife, and it could be transferred in the afterlife to others. So you get the picture. They've been rescued, and now they're taught in their religion that if they will become temporary monks, they will earn something. They will earn merit, and they can, they can use that. It puts them in control, you see. They can use it whatever way they want, and in these boys' case, they dedicated their merit to the Navy SEAL who died. It put them in control. Now, we might shake our heads at this. Maybe, maybe we know virtually nothing about Buddhism, or maybe if you do, you still shake your head and you think, you know, that's strange. But I don't want to talk to you about Buddhism this morning. I only point this out to ask, could Protestant Christians be in danger of doing something very similar, trying to earn merit in order to be in control? Over the last few weeks, we've been going through a series entitled Hot Topics through the summer and today, last one. And I thought maybe I'd take just a moment to explain why. Uh, Typically, I prefer preaching through a book of the Bible or a portion of a book of the Bible. In fact, in September, we're going to start in the book of Exodus. But during the summer, due to vacations and sporadic attendance, sometimes it's, it's, it's helpful to do you know, a, a series of topics. I chose a few weeks ago hot topics. And the reason was this. One, it was not to be controversial. Some of these topics have been controversial, as it turned out. First week, you remember, we asked, should a Christian smoke pot? Secondly, should a Christian drink alcohol? Then we talked about the porn problem within the church. Did not pick these subjects to be controversial. Though, as it turns out, someone told me, you know, through the grapevine, I, I, don't, I don't hear this directly, but some said, oh, oh, Brother Van, is surprised at the grumbling going on in the congregation. I didn't hear too much grumbling about smoking pot. didn't hear much grumbling, you know, but... I think it might have been when we asked, should a Christian drink alcohol? It might have been that one, maybe. I don't know. But my point is this. It wasn't to try to be controversial, though some subjects can be controversial. Secondly, it was not for me to be perceived as brave and courageous. You know, people all the weeks have been saying, oh, Pastor Van, you're brave covering that subject. Eh, not so much. I'm, I'm a 62-year-old weakling. You know, I'm not all that tough. I'm really not. I don't consider myself brave and courageous and that kind of stuff. It was just we picked these topics and that was it. So what was the reason? Well, in all sincerity, I can say the intent of these messages was a continuing effort to safeguard you against certain things. I think the best passage that I could use would be found in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 3. Paul said, I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betroth you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That that passage is is one of the driving forces behind uh, 
what, what I would do pastorally. It, it, you know, I can relate to Paul. I'm afraid. I'm afraid that just as the, the serpent deceived Eve and led her astray, that the same thing could happen to you. Be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. But then the next, right after this, Paul says this. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from one you receive, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. He was actually saying to the Corinthians, you, you put up with a different gospel. So it's, it's with that same spirit that I come to you, that same spirit of concern. Because today we're going to look at one last hot topic, and it is a hot topic, and it is controversial, and it is this. Is the prosperity gospel the true gospel? Is the prosperity gospel the true gospel? Now, first we have to define some terms, so I want to be clear. What, what do we mean by gospel? Think about it this way. When a king would win a battle, he would select what would be called a good news carrier. They didn't have text, email, phones, that sort of thing in this time. And so when the battle was won, when the king won the battle, he would select a good news carrier and say, go back and tell the people. The good news carrier would go back, an evangelist would go back and announce that he had won the battle, was in control, and that the people were free. And when that announcement was made... The people were to believe it and live according to it. So that's the, the general understanding of gospel. But what is God's gospel? God's gospel would be the announcement that Jesus is Lord, that he has won the battle, and it's to be announced the good news that Jesus is Lord, that he's won the battle for your salvation and we are to believe it and live according to it. That is a simple definition of the true gospel of grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what is the prosperity gospel? The prosperity gospel, and I'll explain it in these terms, it's a belief among some Christians that financial blessing and physical well-being are always, keyword always the will of God for them. That it's, they, they, they teach that it's always God's will for financial blessing and physical well-being. And that faith, positive speech, and donations to religious causes will increase one's material wealth. The prosperity gospel teaches that obedience Giving and faith are ways to get the good life from God. I ran across an article just two weeks ago entitled, Prosperity Gospel Taught to Four in Ten Evangelical Churchgoers. Four out of ten evangelical churchgoers are being taught the prosperity gospel. And I wondered, how does that happen? And it happens at least two major ways. It's either taught to them through their local church. In other words, there are churches that proclaim proudly the prosperity gospel. 
And so some of these four in 10 are embracing it from their home church where they're being explicitly, specifically taught the prosperity gospel. For others, however, they are getting it through religious broadcasting, in particular, television. Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar, Kenneth Copeland, Jesse DePlantis, T.D. Jakes, John Hagee, Joyce Meyer, Paul White. These are just to name the major ones that are on the air. Now, I understand that there are people that are shut-ins and all that they have is Christian broadcasting over television. I'm not being critical of anyone. I'm not the TV police. But what often happens is even if we do not embrace a prosperity gospel, sometimes it has a way of seeping in. Understand what I mean by seeping. Imagine you have a basement in your home and you want to keep the water out, but maybe a shift in the foundation, maybe a crack, maybe a little hole, the water at some point begins to seep in. You, you don't invite it in. You don't welcome it in, but it seeps in anyway. Let me give you an example. Imagine you're driving to church on a cold, rainy Sunday morning and you get a flat tire. And if your thought is this, God, really? I'm going to church here. You know I serve there. You know I'm on my way to give. I mean, couldn't you give this flat tire to some abusive husband, some drug dealer? That's the prosperity gospel. Or you're overlooked for a promotion. Or you have received a serious diagnosis and you are mad with God and you think, you should not be experiencing this. This shouldn't be happening to you because you've dotted all your I's and crossed all your T's and you believed real strong. That's the prosperity gospel. See, the very thought that God owes us a relatively trouble-free life and the anger we feel when God doesn't act the way we believe he is supposed to act betrays a heart that expects God to prosper us because of our good works. And it indicates that the prosperity gospel has seeped in. Let me give you another example. The other day, as I was preparing this, did not know this was going to land in my lap, turned on Christian radio, and it was a pastor at a church that preaches a prosperity gospel message. He was expressing concern that churches in America, and he was exactly right in this, he said, it's concerned that churches in America were departing from the true gospel. And I thought, how ironic. But he was concerned about churches departing from the true gospel and departing from scripture because they were embracing things like same-sex marriage and, and, and some of the, the sexual social issues right now. He was exactly right. Of course, people were, woo, amen, amen, woo, woo, you know, it's going crazy in the background. But he went on to say this, and I about fell out of the car. He said, I want to encourage you to read your Bible. And we'll give you five reasons. Number one, Read your Bible and you'll be blessed and make more money. Friends, let me, let me show my cards here, okay? The prosperity gospel is a departure from the true gospel. I'm persuaded that the prosperity gospel is bad theology. It is spiritually unhealthy. And it will leave us unprepared to face life's hard realities. And what is the cure for bad theology? It's real simple. Good theology. 
And so before we look at the good theology of our text, I want us to examine some of the bad theology of prosperity gospel. We will only scratch the surface. We do not have enough time. But sufficient to say this. Notice these passages you'll see on the overhead. 3 John chapter 2. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. The King James Version puts it this way. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as thy soul prospereth. Now, I bring this passage to you this morning because this is, you know, this is the pinnacle within prosperity gospel teaching. This text, this text is held out as the proof text that it's God's will that all believers prosper and have perfect health. And so I just want to spend a moment just to point this out that is so clear. It is so clear. You will not miss it anymore. First, this is a letter. You say, okay, well, many of the epistles in the New Testament are letters. Yes, this is a letter. And notice that what we have just read is a greeting. It is a greeting. Now let me point out what it is not. It is not teaching. John is not offering to the church a a teaching for the church. This is a greeting. You know, some of you still write letters, right? Instead of emails or texts or tweets or whatever, somebody still write letters. And if you look back the history of letters, and, and here we have it right here, history of letters, greetings. It's a greeting. I wish you well. It's not a teaching. And in fact, it's addressing one person, not the church. It's addressing a man named Gaius. So it's not addressing the entire church. It's not addressing a teaching. It's a greeting that you may prosper. And the word means that it may go well with you. In fact, Paul uses this same word in his letter to the Romans. And it speaks of prospering on a journey. That your journey will go well. That you'll be safe. Not money. Not material things. So I just hold this out to you to think about. This is a proof text that is used by the prosperity gospel teachers. It's here it is. Here's the proof. Here's the proof. God wants you to prosper and be healthy and healed and well in all cases. Everybody. Can we compare these verses which are not at all that? Can we compare them to something that Paul said in 2 Corinthians? Notice this. After he identifies himself as a servant of Christ, he says this, five times I've received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Brothers and sisters, the servant of Christ is not promised a trouble-free life. You know, we sang a new song just a few minutes ago. I just got to call your attention to this. Christ, the sure and steady anchor. These songs like this are not sang in prosperity gospel churches. It's because they mention suffering and sorrow. Suffering and sorrow and looking ahead. Friends, the servant of Christ is not promised a trouble-free life. Do not be deceived. Secondly, bad theology 
this is this is bad. And and some of you 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 you, you know this. You've heard this. It seeped in. Proverbs chapter eighteen: Death and life are in the power of the tongue. This verse is often plucked. Just you know, it's it's like you just reach in and pluck it out and make it say what you want it to say. Here's what the prosperity gospel teachers will say. That we are told from them our words are containers for faith. So what we speak needs to be positive, though if you read your Bible, you will find an abundance of negative speaking. All you have to do is read the discourse of where Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. You will find him not speaking all that positive. But we're told that our words are containers for faith. Now, where does that come from? Well, we're told that that's what God did when he created the world. He used faith-filled words to create. And so, by virtue of that, since we are his children, we're told we can too. We can speak faith-filled words that will create reality. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. If this were true, if this were true, you have to admit this would put you in a pretty good position. In fact, we might say it this way. It would put you in control, right? Oh, Brother Van, I don't know if they're teaching that. One of the names I just mentioned, here's what he said. When we pray believing that we have already received what we are praying, God has no choice But to make our prayers come to pass, it is a key to getting results as a Christian. Friend, that ought to make your heart shudder to hear someone in the pulpit say, God has no choice. Let's put it in context. We pray, we believe, now God has no choice. Who's in control here? Who's in control? According to the prosperity gospel, all of a sudden you're in control. And when this teaching seeps into us, you might be here this morning and say, I don't believe that stuff. You may not have embraced it. It might have seeped in. Because when it seeps in, we will say and practice foolish things. Let me give you two. We prayed for you today. We prayed for you today, so you're healed. Don't worry about it. We prayed for your mother, mother today. She's healed. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it now. Friends, I don't make this up. It happens. It's happened in this church. I can't think of anything too much more cruel, inconsiderate, unthoughtful for a person to assume upon themselves that they have with such certainty they can say, you have been healed. Are you God? Are you God? Are you in control? I'm not. You're not either. And see, when this stuff seeps into us, it makes us do stupid stuff, say stupid things that really hurts people. I mean, they're already suffering. They're already hurting, and we come along, and, and what we're really saying is what the prosperity gospel people say is, you know, you've got to believe it. You've got to hang on to it. Don't let the devil steal it from you. Because then it's your fault, see. It's your fault. As if that somehow helps them. But then that's not the only stupid thing we say. We say things like this. Never pray thy will be done. That's a lazy prayer. That's a faithless prayer. That's what we're told. Don't don't pray thy will be done. That's just lazy. Well, 
Just tell that to Jesus. Because isn't that what he prayed? See, don't, don't, don't be deceived, folks. Don't, don't buy into this false gospel, this idea that we can be in control. We can kind of tell God, you know, he, and he's got to, he just has to. While it is clear from Scripture that our tongue can have a devastating impact on another person, it does not teach that our positive words have the power to create reality. Friends, it simply does not. Let me offer to you something better. Something better than what the prosperity gospel offers. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Paul writes, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Now just look at that verse with me for a moment, okay? All Bible students look at this. Now to him, speaking of God the Father. Now to him who is what? Able to do far more. So let's just take the part able to do. Now this is the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And he is saying God is able to do. He does not say God most certainly will or God must See, that, that's often what we're told in prosperity gospel. Oh, you don't want to say able. That doesn't sound like you got faith. You say able. You need to say he will. You've got to say he will. Paul didn't. Paul didn't. He said God is able, but then we're told also in the prosperity gospel that it's up to us to speak and ask the right words. We've got to say the right words. We've got to use faithful words. You see, they turn faith into the, the law of ordinary physics where you, you f- force equal to the size of the object being moved. In other words, you got a big problem, you got to have big faith, you know. And so you got to bring it on, brother. You got to bring it on. You got you to you say the right words. You got to be positive and s- say it all right. You got to get it right. Or God, you know, God's not obligated then. But notice what it says here God is able, put a little parentheses, not us. God is able, not us. God is in control, not us. God is able to do what? Far more than what we ask or think. Now stop and think that through for a moment. Prosperity gospel says, got to get that prayer right, positive words. And then if you do that, then God's obligated. He's got to do it. Maybe Maybe some false God in your head, but not the biblical God. The biblical God is able to do far more than what you ask or can imagine. Isn't that great? Isn't that better than the prosperity gospel? Yes, it is. That God's not bound by my weak prayer. Some of my prayers are weak, folks. Sometimes I don't even know what to pray. But God doesn't sit there and go, you pitiful, you pitiful Get with it. Get me, come on, get me them faith container-filled words, and then I'll hop for you. No, he's able to do far more. Praise God, far more than we ask or can even imagine. And you see, here's, here's the difference, I think. It takes a great deal of spiritual pride to think we're in control. God can smell it a mile away, I believe. He can smell that spiritual pride that says, you know, uh, I believe, I believe, and, and I'm, I believe, and I'm going to say them. But what does the scripture tell us? He gives grace to what? To the humble while he opposes the proud. One other before we get to our text, and I'm going to hurry. We're not, not going to be much longer. 
We're told this in the prosperity gospel, that God put our sin, sickness, disease, sorrow, and grief, and poverty on Jesus at Calvary. And that we can have now, keyword now, we can have now all of it. Now, here's where you really need to focus with me because here we're getting to the problem, the real core of the problem. We're told that we can have now all that Christ paid for at the cross, all that was taken care of in the atonement. We can have it all. Though keep in mind that a glorified body was something that Christ took care of at the atonement. We, we don't have that yet, right? We don't. <laughs> I'm looking at you. You don't. <laughs> and I don't either. But that's something that Christ paid for in the atonement. But do we have it now? No. And here's, here's my point. We're told that we can have healing now. Let's just use that one because that's, that's usually the biggie. The prosperity gospels love the verse, by his wounds we were healed. I love that verse as well. I love it, and I also love knowing what it means. You say, how do you know what it means? I know what it means because the apostle Peter explained what it means. Notice in 1 Peter chapter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then he quotes this verse, by his wounds you have been healed. Now, friends, you've got to stretch and stretch and stretch to make that prove that that is a guarantee of healing. It's not even talking about physical healing. It's talking about a sickness far worse than whatever kind of physical infirmity we may have. Now, I want you to look at our text, okay, because now we're going to make the turn. I want you to, I want you to see this for yourself, okay? Notice in verse 18, let's look, we're going to look at good theology now. For I consider that the what sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is, notice these words, to be, to be revealed to us. Paul speaks of present sufferings and a future so glorious that it cannot be described in earthly terms. Then we read further of groaning, Christians groaning, creation groaning, and Christians waiting. Look, look at verse 23 in the middle of it. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So first thing I want you to notice here is this language of the present sufferings. It's interesting he doesn't use the word prosperity. I just want to point that out. These present sufferings and future glory to be, to be, writing to the church to encourage them. Now, let's admit this. We, we, we are in agreement on this one thing. I think we and those who preach the prosperity gospel, we can agree about this. All of this is desirable. Think about it. Blessing, health, perfect health, no more sorrow. I mean, we all desire that, right? And there's nothing wrong with desiring that. In fact, God's aim is for all these things, eventually, eventually. Now would be nice, right? Amen. And that is why we pray. We pray now for healing. We pray for mercy. 
And the wonderful thing about it is, and we can all testify this, is God many times in his mercy has stepped into our situation and brought mercy and healing and help for us. Amen? He has. And so there's nothing wrong for praying for that. But here is a key difference between us and the prosperity gospel teachers. Timing, timing. Is it now? Can we have it all now? By having enough faith now? Or is it in the future? But you think about something with me. God does things in stages. Could he do it otherwise? Yes, he could. But I want you to notice a pattern, at least concerning death. Let's take death, for example. At Jesus' first coming, the immeasurable penalty of sin was paid. And Christ conquered death. Okay? Christ conquered death. It's a wonderful thing, right? But let me ask you this. Do Christians still die? They do, right? Here's what we see. At Christ's first coming, the immeasurable penalty of sin was paid for, and Christ dealt a death blow to death. But at his second coming, all of the miserable effects of sin will be completely and finally removed, and there will be no more death. God does things in stages, and we wait In fact, since the fall, God has been in the process of making all things new. And understanding this helps us understand the nature of Christian hope. Look at verses 24 and 25 as we come to a close. For in this hope we were saved. Now, look at this. Hope that is seen is not hope. In other words, if we have it, we already have it now. There's no need to hope, right? Because it says, for who hopes for what he sees? Ah, but look at verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. See, I think that's the key word right there. That that makes the difference between the prosperity gospel theology and the true gospel. Waiting patiently. See, hope is that confident expectancy of a promised outcome. Christian hope is living in that waiting period before the promise is carried out. It's a a hope that sustains followers of Christ in the worst of times. In the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah is walking through the ruins of Jerusalem. Family members, friends, all dead, city burnt up. It's the worst of times. And listen to what he said. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance is perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind. Now stop here. He's walking through the ruins. Heartache heartbreak. Things could not be any worse at this moment. And he stops and says, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. What does he call to mind? The steadfast of the Lord never ceases. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Now, when he says, the Lord is my portion, 
He is saying, Lord, you are enough for me no matter what happens. And he's living in the experience of what can happen. It can get bad. Friends, I think, I think one of the reasons why the prosperity gospel is so attractive is because we live in a scary, unpredictable world. We do. So how are we to face a scary, unpredictable world? Psalm 73 and 26. My flesh and my heart may fail. Yes. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My Christian brothers and sisters, with God as our help, may we carry on in hope, in Christian hope. And may we do so as we have Christ as our supreme treasure, our portion forever. Notice it's a psalmist, it's Jeremiah saying to the church that that Christ is our greatest treasure. He's our portion. He's what we need no matter what happens. If you're here this morning and you're outside of Christ, the scripture said that Christ, who was rich, became poor, that you who were poor might become rich. You say, well, brother, isn't that the prosperity gospel? It is to say that Christ is to be your treasure. All the things of this world, money, stuff, family, people, all can be stripped away. Christ cannot be stripped away. Make him your supreme treasure. He is enough no matter what happens.